right, good morning. How is everyone this morning? Hey, isn't this great to be together in the house of the Lord? I love that song, don't you? Man, Joe, bring the band out. Let's sing that again. Let's go. You guys ready? Joe starts running on stage. Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, one of our staff models is fast, fluid, flexible. So let's really do that song again. Seriously, are we ready? Matt, you want to do the song again? No, okay. Some of you are like, are you serious? No. Hey, good morning. Good to see you guys. Man, I love our one service Sundays, don't you? Anybody love the dorky, cheesy name tags that we make you wear on these Sundays? Anybody love those, right? <clears throat> Some of you are like, where's your name tag? You know my name. You know my name. But um, you don't know everyone else's names. So... This is really good. Wear a name tag. Uh, we're going to get to know each other. We got a quick business meeting right after service. And um, if you're not a member and you're a regular tender, you call this place home, then I want you in the business meeting, okay? You can't vote, but I want you in that meeting. This is a very important meeting. We're going to be talking about future board of directors, our annual budget, a few things like that. So stay right after the service. It should be maybe 30 minutes or so, all right? Um, let me get my timer going. Timer's important. I don't want to go too long today. Pull out your message notes this morning. Today we're going to be talking about truths for troubled hearts. Anybody have a troubled heart this morning? Okay, maybe you don't want to admit it. You know, we all face trials and tribulations and setbacks and hardships and suffering and sin, the consequences of sin. And so we're going to be talking about God's comfort for his people. And we're going to go to John chapter 11. We're going to look at the story of Lazarus, the story of Lazarus from John chapter 11. If you have a Bible, turn there. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you pull out your smartphone or you just pull out the notes. I've got it listed for you. John 11, verses 1 to 6. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You know, like any good story, does anyone enjoy a really good story? I mean a really good story. Okay, how many of you prefer reading a novel, a book, over watching the movie? Raise your hand if you prefer the book over the movie. Raise your hand if you prefer the movie over the book. All right, all right. Ooh, evenly dispersed this morning. We got book readers, we got movie watchers, all right? Like any good story, characters are settled. In the story, you have two sisters, one brother. I find it very interesting, I, I read this week, that scholars believe possibly that maybe Martha was the oldest, Mary was the second, and Lazarus was the youngest. We're not positive on that because the Bible doesn't give us those details, but uh, scholars tend to think maybe that was the scenario. Nothing is mentioned about the parents. They're nowhere to be found. We know that they did have parents. 
Uh, We know they lived in Bethany. Jesus was very close to this family. He would often uh, retreat and go to Bethany, which was two hours, uh, not two hours, two miles east of Jerusalem. He was very tight with his family. In verse 2 of John chapter 11, it says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Some Bible scholars believe that this possibly was the same Mary of John 8, the sinful woman caught in adultery, when Jesus said, go and sin no more. What's amazing about this family, this story, this person, he made her, who was a broken sinner, to be one of his closest friends. You know, as Christians, we want to live in isolation. We want to live in a bubble. We don't want to be around non-Christians because if we're around non-Christians, we may become like them. And so we want to isolate instead of infiltrate. We want to retreat instead of take the gospel to a hurting world. See, we are the church. God has given us a message to steward. A steward doesn't own it. A steward manages it. We have been giving the the, the precious word of God, the gospel, the good news that can redeem people, that can save people. And so we need to be about the mission We need to be rubbing shoulders with lost people. We should be building relationships with lost people. I mean, Jesus, where in the Bible did Jesus say, retreat, retreat? No, he never said retreat. He never said isolate. It's okay to have some Christian influences in your life, 100%. But if your world is just purely Christian, How are you living out the gospel? How are you living on mission with Jesus? How are you partnering with Jesus to reach lost people, people who are far away from Christ? Jesus, you know what he did? He threw people into the sphere of his love. I mean, he claimed their affections. He loved them with such deep affection. His grace drew them uh, to himself. The Bible says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You know, uh, Jesus would often go to their house, and I just kind of envisioned Jesus having barbecues right with them, you know, and, and kosher barbecues, and it, I, I would have loved to have been there. And um, verses 3 and 4, it says, So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Your translation might say, this illness does not end in death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus is, is, is making this emphatic statement, this, this illness that you perceive will not ultimately end in death. This illness is really going to bring about a, a picture, a, a wonderful highlight of the glory of God. There's a higher purpose to the illness. Now, let me ask you a question. Where do you get your reality? Many people in this room are probably realists. What you see is what is true, right? But a lot of people, what, what they see shapes their reality. A lot of people, their feelings shape their reality, right? How you view life is based on the roller coaster of emotions that you're experiencing, But the Bible says that as followers of Christ, we walk by faith, not by sight. Our reality is not 
based on what we see. It's not based on what we feel because we know that the heart is desperately wicked, the prophet Jeremiah said. Your heart can deceive you, lie to you, trick you. The, the heart is wicked, right? So as followers of Christ, our reality is not shaped by what we see or how we feel. It's shaped by what we know to be true. Our reality is based on the word of God. Our reality is based on the promises of God. So how do we, how do we get this reality? We get this reality by believing in God's word. The Bible should shape us not just personally in our sanctification, but it should shape, where was I going? Not just personally, but let me back, back up to my notes. Um, how should it shape us? Let me back up again. I kind of forgot where I was saying. It should shape, yeah, our spiritual beliefs. Some of you are like, come on, Pastor Elijah. Come on, get with it, man. You're, you know. So the Bible should shape what you believe about God. The most important thing about you is your belief about God. If you miss the nature of God, if you miss it, and a lot of people are missing it, they're they're missing a right understanding of who God is, you will miss eternity. The most important thing about you is your concept view of God. So the Bible should shape our beliefs. It should shape our personal sanctification. The Bible shapes what is true, what is not true. Here's point number one. It's not over till Jesus says it's over. We're going to talk about that. In John chapter 10, Jesus is confronted by the Jews, and they ask him this question, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. You know, Jesus said many things, but one saying caused them to pick up stones, and they tried to stone him because he said, he made this massive claim. He said, I and the Father are one. So he was claiming to be divine. He's claiming to be God. So they tried to arrest him. Jesus fled to the wilderness. And then, this is where we pick up the story, tragedy strikes. Lazarus suddenly gets ill. The sisters, they send news to to Jesus. Now you have to understand, where Jesus is at, to Bethany, it's a two days journey. That's a long trip. There was no telegraph. There was no email. You know, there was no like text message, right? So You had to physically go. So the sisters sent word to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, what was Jesus' response? Look at verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, notice this, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus hears the news that his friend Lazarus is, is sick. But he waits, he intentionally waits two days before taking the journey to Bethany. He he stays two more days. It's like Jesus is like, book me another night at the hotel. I'm staying longer. I'm going to get there, right? I mean, who does that? Jesus does that. You know, when there's a crisis in your life, what do you do? You rush to the scene. You get involved. You get your hands dirty. Right, you, you, you get there as quickly as possible so that maybe you can help, you can care, you can show compassion, you can, you can hug, you can cry. You're a support system. Crisis happened, Jesus didn't rush. His no rush attitude appears to be harsh, unloving, uncaring, a bit cold. 
Lazarus has died. The sisters are experiencing deep sorrow, unbelievable grief. Here's some application for us. God allows bad things to happen for a reason. Romans 8.28, it's a game-changing verse for our faith. It doesn't answer all of our questions. I mean, ultimately, it, 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 we're human, we're fallen, we're broken. It, it's, hard to, um, it's hard to fully embrace it by faith based on what you've gone through. But God's word, the spirit of God tells us in his word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. I don't understand that. You look at the life of Joseph, look at the life of Job, look at the life of Jesus. I don't understand that. Pain, suffering, crisis, death. God is sovereign. God is working behind the scenes for his good purpose, even in the midst of death. You know, sometimes we feel like God's delays in life prove that he doesn't care for us. But his delay must just be that. Maybe his delay shows us exactly how much he really does care for us. Jesus is delaying to get to the family. But we know the end of the story. The story is not kind of unfolding in front of our eyes right now. Like We, we know the story. We've heard this so many times. Good's going to come out of the tragedy. The disciples, their faith is going to be stretched. So many people are going to place their faith in Christ. And ultimately, the end game of all of life is that God will be glorified. That this is, this is the, the most profound thing about the story. God's going to get glory. The Son's going to be glorified. There's a deeper meaning here, and I, want you, I, don't, I don't want you to miss it. He intentionally waits several days to perform one of the most spectacular miracles. Why does he wait? He waits to prove that he is the Son of God, that he has power over death and the grave. This is why I said it, at point one, it's not over until Jesus says it's over. See, Jesus had the right perspective because Jesus was God. He knew he was going. He knew he was going to perform this grand miracle and Lazarus was going to rise from the dead and come back to life. He knew it. He saw the future. Martha, Mary, they didn't see it. They didn't see it. But it's not over until Jesus says it's over. That is a good truth for us in our life. When it comes to your marriage, it's not over until it's over. Maybe your finances, maybe you're facing bankruptcy. You don't even know what to do, who to turn to. It's not over until Jesus says it's over. Maybe there was a relationship that's been ripped apart and you don't know what to do. You want to heal it. You want to fix it. You want to work on it. It's not over until Jesus says it's over. God's delays aren't necessarily God's denials. Jesus was delaying intentionally, but he wasn't denying the fact that he was going to come and extend compassion and, and breathe life back into Lazarus. Here's point number two. Jesus meets us in our grieving moments. He meets us in our grieving moments. You know what I love about John 11? When you come, when you come at it and you look at it, you're going you're gonna to see one reoccurring theme throughout the whole story. You're going to notice a great emphasis on Christ's love for this family. 
He loved them. He wasn't just friends with them. They weren't just acquaintances. He, they were dear to him. He loved them with a deep, abiding, affectionate love. He loved them. He had a deep affection for them. In verse 3, if you remember, it says that the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 5, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It didn't say Jesus loved the family. He loved all three of them. Jesus calls them out individually. Christ's love for you, it's individual, it's personal. Jesus said, I, 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 he loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loved Lazarus. The end of the story, if you look at verses 35 and 36, you know, the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35, anyone know it? Jesus wept. Say that with me. Jesus wept. If you've never, never memorized a scripture in your life, you just did right there. John eleven thirty-five. 35, say it with me. Jesus wept. The next verse, verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Christ met this family in their deepest grief. You ever gone through grief? You ever lost a parent or a child? Jesus meets this family where they're at. And if you ever wonder if Christ can meet you in your grief, he can. He can meet you in your darkest moments because he loves you, because he cares for you, because if you're a child of the king, he's for you, not against you. He is your champion, champion of heaven, who embodied grace and came to earth, and he spoke truth to lead us back to the Father. He's meeting this family in their deepest grief, and he can meet you in your grief. This is why the Bible tells us to build our house on the rock, to build our house upon Christ, upon his word, upon his principles, so that when the storms come and they rage and they beat against the house, against your life, you're with, able to hold, withstand the storm. You know, Jesus comes to Bethany to see Lazarus, and he's been in the tomb now for four days. Rabbis say it, like day three, soul leaves, right? So day four, very intentional. Jesus wanted to make sure he wanted to just prove to everyone, this guy is completely dead, okay? He's, he's dead. Spirit, the soul has gone. Martha speaks her mind. Don't you love Martha? I love Martha, man. Martha speaks her mind, right? Jesus arrives into town. Martha speaks up. She's bold. Uh, she looks at Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, Martha... If it's true, we don't know, but if it's true, Martha, firstborn. You know, firstborns, they know how to get it done, don't they? I mean, they're detailed. They're, I mean, Martha's in the kitchen. Remember that story? She's in the kitchen. She's working. She's cooking, right? Where's Mary? Mary's secondborn, possibly. Mary's at the feet of Jesus. We know that was a good thing. That was a good thing. Jesus said, hey, it's a good thing. Surrender, worship, right? But firstborns, we got any firstborns in the house? Raise your hand. Firstborns. Any proud firstborns? Right? I mean, everything God dumped on you and the family, you were expected to be the leader, 
right? To set the example. I feel bad for all the firstborns. I really do. You know? You know, you hear about the firstborns having to take the the brunt of it all, the burden, set the example. I said, I would never do that to my kids. And then I started doing it. (laughs) Then I started doing it. John Mark, you're the oldest. John Mark, step up. You set the example. Come on, John Mark. Right? We have any second, second borns, third borns in the house, right? You know, second, third borns, they could kind of get lost in the shuffle a little bit because the attention from mom and dad is on the firstborn, right? Secondborn, thirdborn, party type, fun, outgoing, getting into trouble, right? They're a lot to handle, right? Can I get an amen from the firstborns? Can I get an amen from the firstborns? Secondborn's tough to handle. I'm a secondborn, but I, I wasn't tough to handle. I, I was. I wasn't. Why you laugh? I'm a pastor. I love Jesus, okay? I love Jesus. I love my mom. I love my wife. All right. Um, so she's like, Jesus, if you had been here. I mean, she didn't mess around. I can only imagine. I can only imagine her anger, her frustration, the tone of her voice, the tears streaming down her face, just the sorrow, the deep anguish, the pain. John eleven twenty three 23 to 27, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Maybe you should circle the word believe there. See, a lot of people believe that, no, no, I, I, I've got to, no, that, that sounds too easy. That sounds too easy. Are you, me, are, are you telling me that all I have to do is place my faith, trust in Christ? Yeah. The gospel is repentance and faith. You turn from sin, you turn to Christ by faith. That's the response to the gospel. Somewhere along the lines, people started believing, well, it's got to be more than that. It's, it's got to be performance. It's got to be avoiding this taboo and that taboo. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you shall never die. Do you believe this? So she, she's, he, he's turning the question. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. You know, Martha was thinking about the future, future resurrection. She was trying to get her focus on him being the, the resurrection. Here's point number three. The resurrection is not an event but a person. The resurrection is not a future event. It is based on Christ and who he is as a person. Jesus sees Martha and Mary. Both are weeping. It moves Jesus to tears. The sisters escort Jesus to the tomb. It's been four days since Lazarus has died. And this is when the human body begins to decay. Jesus begins to pray to the Father. And then let's pick up in verse 43 and 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, 
his hands and feet bound with linen stripes, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You know what I love about this story? That it actually happened. A lot of people, they come to these stories, and, oh, it's, it's fairy tale, it's legendary, it didn't happen. No, it, it happened. It's a true story. Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Lazarus' testimony? You know, maybe they're going around in community group, and, you know, they're sharing testimonies, they're swapping stories, and Lazarus chimes in, oh, well, guys, yeah, those are great testimonies, but I was dead, and he brought me back to life. I mean, you can't really trump that, you know? Jesus raised three people back to life. Jairus' daughter. Remember the widow's son? It was actually during a funeral procession, the widow's son in, in, from Nain. Jesus and, 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 and uh, his disciples, they take kind of a a backwards beaten path and the disciples are wondering why are we going to through Nain to Nain and he said I've got work to do right and we know that they showed up funeral procession I mean she's lost her husband now she's lost her son and Jesus comes to the casket and brings her boy back to life and then he raises Lazarus from the dead here's point number four Maybe for your troubled heart, maybe you're wondering about death. Jesus has power over death. He has power over death. You know, I don't know where you're at. I don't know, you know, maybe some of you, what your view is on, on death and afterlife. But Jesus tells us that if you believe in him, if you place your faith in Christ in him and you follow him, you will beat death. You know, there's a, a terminal disease called morality, mortality. The death rate is 100%. Did you know that three people die every second? 180 people die every minute. 10,800 people die every hour. Everyone will face death in their lifetime. It's a fact. Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, he commanded a servant to stand in his presence each day and say, Philip, you will die. You think that would change your life? If you're reminded every day by a, a servant, you will die. No one beats death. Death comes to all, rich, poor, man, woman, old, young. Death knocks on everyone's door. It was the ancient merchants. They would write the words, memento mori, which means think of death in large letters on the first page of their accounting books. We know that death is the debt that everyone must pay. And a lot of people are, they don't think about death. I just don't even understand that. I don't even understand why anyone would not even think about death. I mean, just think about the, the cosmos. I mean, like Earth is suspended, right? In the, in the Milky Way galaxy, we're so, we're at the perfect distance from the sun. There is beauty and order and creation. There's complexity and design. There has to be an intelligent designer. And based on the Bible, we say that this is God. I love Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. N nowhere, I mean, it just simply states it. It just says, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no defense of God. There's, there's no logical argumentation, reasoning. Okay, this is, this is why there's a God. Boom, 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 boom. Those things are good. 
We should understand the Christian worldview. We should understand what do we believe? Why do we believe it? Why do we believe it? It's so important. Let me just be honest with you. People, you rarely, rarely are you going to argue someone into the kingdom of heaven. You know what I think you're going to do? I think God's going to use us to to build a bridge of love to other people. And I like to say it in our membership class, one plank at a time. See, sometimes we we think, I'm going to build this bridge, and I'm just going to lay that one plank, and bam, they're going to know Christ. You might have to put a lot of planks out there. God may take you out of their life because maybe you were in their life for a season, and then someone else is going to be building planks. It's like, you know, planting seeds, and eventually God waters that seed. Rarely are you going to argue someone into the kingdom of heaven, but I think... God can use you to love someone into the kingdom of heaven because you love them like Christ. The reality is death is the death that everyone's gonna pay. We try to avoid death. We don't, we don't think about it. I don't understand it. Or, or we, we do think about it, so we're popping pills. We're following all the latest fads. We're, we're executing the, the, um, the most innovative exercises. The reality is you and I are going to die. It's not a popular message. Don't bring it up at Thanksgiving. People are not going to like it. But for the believer, death is gain. Amen? Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. How is death gain? We know that death was the final enemy, the final foe. But because Jesus died on the cross and he was buried and he came back to life the third day, he crushed Satan. He gave him a final, fatal death blow. Amen? The empty tomb is empty. It's empty because Christ conquered the grave. And because Christ conquered the grave, you too someday will conquer the physical grave. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, he said, the day thou fearest as the last is the birthday of eternity. I love that. The day you die as a believer, it's your birthday. It's a day that's going to usher you into the presence of God for eternity. And all of your doubts, all of your questions, all of your sorrows, all of your pain, they'll flee away in the presence of God I mean, Paul tells us in Romans, right, there's groanings and pains from creation and all this this present earthly suffering is not even going to compare to the glory that that will be revealed to us someday in heaven. There um, There was a Boston tombstone that said, stop here, my friend, and cast an eye. Where you now stand, so once was I. Where I now lie, so you shall be. So prepare for death and follow me. Someone scribbled beside it on the tombstone, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. Where are you going when you die? Do you know? Have you thought about eternity? Have you done business with God, the creator of this universe, the creator that knows you, that loves you, that created you? There's two things that stand out to this, in this passage. Number one, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection. How can someone die and yet live? That's the question. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in the gospel, you can have life beyond the grave. You can have purpose now, 
and life beyond the grave. Your sins can be forgiven. And then Jesus goes on, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, there was a a few chapters later in the Gospel of John, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and after he had washed their feet and, and they observed the Passover meal and he transformed it into the Lord's Supper, I, I bet you their minds were completely blown. Jesus was talking spiritually about you know, Egypt and bondage and slavery, but in me, I'm the perfect, spotless, blameless Lamb of God and, and I'll set you free spiritually. I'll set you free from sin and death. And, um, and then he drops a bombshell. In the upper room discourse, he tells his disciples in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. On another occasion, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, I want you to hear what Jesus said. He says this, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus tells us some amazing things um, in this passage. There are two roads. Spiritual things do matter. Jesus is saying so clear, there is no neutrality with me. There's no such thing as, as, as being spiritually on the, flint, on the fence. Spiritual things do matter. And then he says there are two roads. There are two destinations. The right road leads to life. The wrong road leads away from life. So in life, you're either on the road, the narrow road leading to eternal life, or you're on the opposite road, the wide road, the wide gate, which leads to ultimate destruction. So this kind of brings up a real problem. This is where worldviews collide. We live in a postmodern culture. All religions are the same. You know, I've, I've used the metaphor before years past. Imagine a mountain. God's at the top. And all these, you know, world religions, they all have a, a different path up the mountain. Many roads, one destination. But, but as Christians, we know that there is only one road leading up the mountain. All of a sudden, when you say, well, well, there's not many paths, there's one path ultimately to get to God. When you say that, you're labeled as a, a bigot, you're prejudiced, you're narrow-minded, or the big heavy word, you're intolerant. You're labeled intolerant because of a redefinition, a, a redefining of the word. The meaning of tolerance today is not what it meant several decades ago. In the past, it meant that you can disagree with someone and yet still have deep respect for that person and their opinions. You can agree to disagree, but today people say, well, if you don't see it the way I see it, if you don't accept my beliefs, then you're unloving. You're intolerant. I like what G.K. Chesterton said, tolerance is the virtue of the man without convictions. That's what it is. You have no convictions. Christians have the responsibility to speak the truth in love. This is the tricky part, to be truthful and yet to be gracious and loving. Christ is the, he's the example. Christ, Christ is, was, he was 100% truthful and 100% loving. So he's the model for us to follow. The Gospel of John says, grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. You look at his life. 
Look at his ministry. Look at all the people that Christ interacted with. I mean, he, he loved the unlovable. He forgave the unforgivable. I mean, he was always pursuing brokenness, lostness, sinners. I mean, he loved tax collectors and he loved the prostitutes and he loved people that, honestly, many of us really wouldn't want to be around. We wouldn't give an invite to them to our community group. We wouldn't have them over to our house for a meal. We might not even invite them to church. Shame on us. You know, the gospel is packed with, with truth and love. It's the embodiment of Christ. We know that the gospel is offensive. It can be offensive. We know that it is. I mean, the, 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 the truth that there's this Jewish guy 2,000 years ago that claims to be the Messiah. He came to fulfill all these, you know, promises, you know, hundreds of years prior. He claimed to be God. He shed his blood on the cross, and he came back to life, and he said, hey, you can have forgiveness, eternal life through me, me only. That's foolishness to the world. That, that's crazy talk. That's insanity. That you're going to place your trust in, in the shed blood of a, of a messianic king? Yeah, I am. Because I believe the Bible is God's written word for us. The gospel is offensive. When you, when you state that, that Christ is the only way, it can offend people. Your life shouldn't be offensive. Your words shouldn't be offensive. But we know that the gospel will be offensive at times. People say, well, all religions are equally correct. Jesus is diametrically opposed to this belief. Why? He's talking about, I'm the resurrection and the life to the family. Now he's talking about narrow gate, wide gate, Acts 4.12, the early church. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. What was he saying? I alone can make it possible for you to know my Father. If you want to know this God that created you, this God that loves you, this God that wants you to be a part of his family for eternity, then you need to come to Christ today. You need to come to Christ today. You need to place your faith in Christ today. Christ died for you. He was buried for you. And he rose again the third day for you. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. As believers, we don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear the future because Christ has conquered the grave. And because he conquered the grave, we too will conquer the grave someday. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. God, thank you for your truth. God, thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. Christ, in you, we have life. This abundant life, while we're just traveling through, but this ultimate, eternal, permanent, lasting life with you someday that will never end. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord God, I pray that maybe someone here today 
has never surrendered. They, they've never surrendered. They've never come to a point of decision to follow you, to make you the savior of their life. God, may they open their heart to you right now in this very moment. May, may they just admit to you, God, God, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, and I believe that your son Jesus died for me. He came to this broken world, and he brought grace and love and truth, and I believe that he's the son of God, the only way to heaven. I believe that he died for me, and he conquered the grave the third day. And so today I commit, I choose to follow you. With the limited understanding that I have, I choose to follow you. God, may you do that in someone's life today. May you open their eyes to the greatness of Christ and who he is and what he's done for them. May they just cry out for forgiveness, for you to change them, to make them whole and to heal them spiritually. God, I pray that you would speak to us as believers. Lord God, that we would understand in life when things happen, things are not over till you say it's over. Give us the right perspective, God, on life, knowing that you're good, you have a plan, and you have a better, you have a better picture of, of what's happening than we do. Help us to trust you, God, in that. Help us, Lord, to walk with you. To walk with you hand by hand, knowing that we're safe in your arms. You have rescued us. You, you've beaten death. Death has no power, no dominion over us anymore because we're in you, Christ. God, speak to us. Encourage us to be all that you want us to be. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.